You are now listening to Me and the Market Goliath podcast. Welcome to another episode of Me and the Market Goliath podcast. As always, I'm your host, Kelvin. I'm really excited about this episode because it's going to get really complex and will be an interesting knowledge session as I get to invite Amit Kukeja, who hosts his own YouTube channel under his name. He is an investor of the stock Palantir, ticker symbol PLTR, and he covers this American software company that specializes in big data analytics at great lengths. Amit is a great speaker and someone I found to have a good sense of humor within the finance YouTube community, and it's not because of his unique hairstyle. Today, we get to learn more about Amit and his investment philosophy, his views on a controversial stock he's invested in and passionate about covering. He also covers Palantir on his website called Palantir Daily. In addition, he is someone who I have researched has done his due diligence on the company, interviewed multiple people who are Palantir evangelists, or at least understands well Palantir's core business model. Amit, welcome to the podcast. It's such a pleasure to have you to talk to us about your investment philosophy and share with my audience over here across the world who's maybe interested in learning more about Palantir, a big data analytics company that many people would say is dependent on government business. And it's so fitting given that we are living in an environment of geopolitical unrest and macro uncertainty. I know you're not only just that, you're a founder of an online platform designed to discover audio ideas called Odea.io, but you also host your own YouTube channel while covering Palantir on a daily basis. So how do you fit everything in one day? Yeah, thank you for having me on, Calvin. Really appreciate being here. I think everything I'm doing right now perceptually feels meaningful, even if it's not meaningful. So I've convinced myself that it is meaningful. And when you've convinced yourself that the work you're doing is meaningful, then you work for it and you really work towards it. So an example is a couple of nights ago, I slept at 4 a.m. because I had to stay up to really get something done. Like I just had to stay up till 4 a.m. And then I had to wake up at 6 a.m. to do something else. And then you got other work to do the day. And like, so you had two hours of sleep and it's not the healthiest, but sometimes when you're running on fumes and you really feel like what you're doing matters, then you just keep going and doing it. So like for me, I care very deeply about purpose. And when I discovered Palantir and I discovered the ability to cover the company would allow people to actually understand it a lot more better. I just like building, you know, I'm at the stage of my life where I just want to build. And if that requires work, then let's get to work. So how did you come across investing? Yeah, it's interesting. I bought my first stock on Robinhood in 2019. Robinhood was the catalyst for me, which is why I'll always have a soft spot in my heart for that company, even though I can't buy their stock. <laughs> so I bought Neo. That was my first stock. And it was at like $1.22. And I was just so excited. I was like, oh, it's $1.22. Let me buy it. And then I just kept buying it all throughout 2020. And my average was like three bucks and I had like six, 700 shares. And then I sold it at $6 because I was like, oh, you know, like an idiot. And then obviously Neo went to $60. I could have made like 30, 40 grand. But it is what it is. That was my first mistake when it came to investing. So I downloaded Robinhood. I started looking at stocks. It was kind of like cool to kind of play around with these stocks and like buy stuff and you see confetti and all this stuff. So I think the gamification of Robinhood got me into it. And then, you know, when the pandemic happened and I saw the entire market crash, I think I lost like seven, eight grand kind of paper losses. I, I felt the pain of what it means like to lose money, but I also saw the opportunity and like, oh, I could get a really good business like United Airlines for 17 bucks and it's all time high. It was, it was $90. And like, you kind of start to fall in love with the process of the game of finding stocks and like looking towards what is EBITDA, what is the revenues, what are the profit margins, all that stuff. So I, that's when I got into it. 2021, I discovered Palantir and now 2022, I'm just trying to become a better investor every day. So what does investing mean to you and how would you describe your investment philosophy since 2019? 
Yeah. I mean, it's changed over time. 2019 was more hype. It was just buy random stuff every single day and sell it. It's like, it, there was no investing philosophy or practice. And I couldn't blame myself when you're 20 years old, 21 years old, you're just like playing with this stuff. And, it's, and if you don't have anyone to guide you, my parents don't know anything about stocks. I taught them about the stock market. Then you kind of got to figure it out on your own. I think now my investment philosophy is like, all right, I'm 24 years old. I don't want to cash out my stocks until I'm like 34 ish, right? Like I, I really don't want to do that. So if I'm looking at a 10 year hold, I'm trying to find the companies that I truly think are going to be transformational in 10 years. So with Palantir, I'm down a significant amount of money. I'm down like 40 grand. And it sucks because it's like, you know, I worked a couple of years to make 40 grand and now it's all gone in sort of these paper losses. But I also do understand why I invested in them. And if I invested in them for a reason and sort of the philosophy comes down to what is going to be able to grow at least 25 to 30% year over year, what is going to be able to integrate in various different sectors of the economy, which is my biggest element. For Palantir, I think they can integrate with blockchain and healthcare and energy and, and supply chains. And there's all these different things. I was like, oh, they're going to be available everywhere. And then what has a unique management philosophy, meaning the people that I'm trusting with my money, can I actually see myself giving them money and taking them money and making it more over the long term? So I look for things that are long term innovative. I look for things that have a unique philosophical element to them. And then I ultimately look for things that I don't feel bad about holding at night when I sleep, even if I'm down a lot of money because I think they'll come back. And so I think Palantir fits in that criteria. This is a perfect segue to discuss the heart of today's discussion. I'm really thankful to have you on to talk about Palantir here. It's not an easy company to analyze. I know another YouTuber, friend of yours, Tom Nash, a guest who has appeared on my podcast as well, is bullish on Palantir. So it's great to have two friends who know each other and is working together within the YouTube community talk about companies and macro stock market outlook. And jumping straight into it, could you help us break down what Palantir does? Why is this company so important today? In the simplest sense, governments, organizations, companies, they all have data that they have to make sense of. And data is the cliche, but it's the new oil. And what I mean by that is if you know things about your company from a perspective of analyzing your data, you can make a data-driven decision. Well, the way to make a data-driven decision means you need to have some type of software that helps you understand what that data is. And when you scale up the company, the data gets very complex. The data starts existing in a lot of different places. And ultimately, the question becomes how much time to value? How much time can you save by getting value out of interpreting that data in order to make a meaningful decision? So if you need to fix your supply chains because you have a certain model of a car coming out in six months and you need to figure out why the doors are breaking every time or why people are buying it in Singapore, but they're not buying it in Japan, like what's going on? All this data, if you can put it into this like machine and that machine can use AI, machine learning, all this stuff and just spit out answers. And then you can use those answers and make sense of it. Well, that's incredibly powerful. And it will get incredibly powerful over the next 10, 20 years because more and more companies will just keep producing more and more data. So that's like at its core, that's what Palantir does on the commercial side. And then on the governmental side, they have a unique philosophical element to them that I'm very attracted to. They believe in protecting Western values like individualism and freedom of speech, which is why they don't work in Russia. They don't work in China. They've exclusively limited themselves to not working with authoritarian regimes in order to make sure that they can continuously help the, the freedoms that they believe are meaningful. And so as a result of that, when they integrate with governments, they try to make sure they can show governments a way in which they can protect themselves, stop terrorist attacks and use data at the intersection of protecting civil liberties, which is where Palantir gets misconstrued, they, people think, oh, they're working with the government, they're spying on people's data. That could not be more farther from the truth. They don't allow the government to actually be able to spy on the data because of the way they built their technology. And I know it's a complex thing to understand, but that is the truth. So the idea of protecting Western values and actually helping the world along with using data to, to drive operations, that's incredibly attractive to me. And so I see the TAM of the government business being north of $100 billion. The commercial business could be 
close to 100, 200 billion dollars. And then you attach a multiple on their stock price of what that could be in the next 10 years. And so I think there's a chance they could be big. It's crazy to think how retail investors can invest in government businesses indirectly. Palantir offers a very unique value proposition in my view. If you look at their mission statement, it states that at Palantir, they're passionate about building software that solves problems. They partner with the most important institutions in the world to transform how they use data and technology. Their software has been used to stop terrorist attacks, discovering new medicines, gain edge in global financial markets. The company was founded by Peter Thiel, along with other prominent business leaders, including Nathan Gettings, Joe Lansdale, Stephen Cohen, and of course, Alex Karp back in 2003. So in terms of management team, I think it's impressive. And if you look at their bio, they're all educated people that went to Harvard, Stanford. So I don't have much of a problem in terms of the management team. But I think there is that controversial aspect of the business. Alex Karp mentioned a few times in public interviews, Palantir's position in a way that they want to be seen as a neutral adjudicator. And what that means is that if a company or country needs help to be protected by means of data or gain a competitive edge, they're able to help. Alex Karp understands his business model quite well, I would say. So in order to gain competitive edge, you'll need to pay top dollar for it. And governments, billionaires, conglomerates can afford to do that. Yeah, that's the thing that actually makes me more confident is I've just spoken to so many people about it. So like Codestrap is one of the main guys in the Palantir community who understands it from a technical perspective. And when you listen to him talk, even if you don't fully understand every minute detail he's talking about, you can understand at a macro level, he's a developer. He's a vice president of technology. He's a pretty big technology education company. And his argument is when I use this platform and when my developers use this platform, we get time to value. Like we can build stuff in a much more easier way. It's so much more integrated. It's so much more distributed. It makes more sense. And so they have a lot of developers and they need to get more developers that actually can evangelize the product for them. But the developers that use it really, truly love it. And there's a reason why other competitors are not doing some of the stuff that they're doing. So number one, that makes me bullish to be able to like to interview people that if I didn't interview those people, I, I honestly wouldn't know that much about the tech and I would be betting more so on the hype. So like, I think I actually do know a decent amount about the tech. The second thing is I analyze their collaborations very deeply. I mean, so they had a collaboration with Trafigora, which is this climate change data warehouse, and they're integrating with Palantir to be able to track carbon emissions for companies so that they can reduce the actual emissions they have because getting to net zero is a very big data problem. And so like when you see those collaborations and why other companies like the Snowflakes, the Data Dogs of the world, those competitors, why aren't they collaborating with Trafigora? You start to realize, well, there is something unique about Palantir and their technology that's differentiated that allows them that collaboration to make sense. So, I mean, the number one reason I'm bullish for them is because I see Palantir making platforms for different industries. So with the airline industry, they made a platform in combination with Airbus called Skywise, which now 150 airliners and distributors and manufacturers and subcontractors use in order to make sure airplanes get in the sky and they come down safely from a parts perspective, supply perspective, logistics perspectives. And then the FAA, the Federal Aviation Administration in the United States, uses Palantir to be able to make sure they can operate their data meaningfully and integrate their data meaningfully to manage all the airplanes in the United States from like when they go to the sky and you have to talk to the the FAA controller. So like you just see them making these types of different platforms for different industries. And the question is, can they make more of these platforms for more of these industries? And can they capture a little bit of market share in each of these industries? And I think capturing a tiny percent of market share in all these massive multi-billion dollar TAMs leads them to become a pretty significant company. But they've got to produce the results for the Wall Street to reward them with that. And that's the question is like, can they actually produce those results? 
Do you think that they're able to take market share from essentially like the AWS's, Datadog, Snowflake in terms of data analytics? I mean, if you were to pitch a complicated product to a commercial enterprise, like how would you go about pitching it without providing as much information and without disclosing the businesses or the government institutions that you work with? It doesn't seem easy to sell the platform. I know there's a lot of exposure and success stories at the same time and secrecy. For example, like they've assisted with pinpointing the location of Osama bin Laden. But the question is, how would they be able to take more of the commercial side of the business? As investors, we're more concerned about the scalability of their business, being able to convince the commercial enterprises less so than the government side of the business. Yeah, they've got to execute. I mean, the thing is, they don't really have to take market share from AWS and and Azure. I mean, they work with those cloud computing platforms. They're not in direct competition with them, but they've got to be able to offer the service in a way that the masses, not just the biggest Fortune 500 companies in the world can use. And the other companies are eating their lunch. You know, Snowflake is amazing. They're growing 100% year over year because they let everyone use them. Like it's out of the box software. Palantir is not an out-of-the-box software. It's a lot more complicated. I think that's what gives Palantir its moat, but you've also got to figure out from a salesmanship perspective, how do you sell that to the world? Now, the government revenue is great because it's always going to be there. It's always going to be sticky. This Russia-Ukraine situation that happened showed us empirically Palantir is working to mitigate some of the problems that's going on there. Alex Karp literally went to see Vladimir Zelensky in Ukraine and talk with him. So I think that's great. But the question is, how does that translate to business success and how do they penetrate the commercial sectors? This is where I go back to platforms. I feel like If you build a platform for the airline industry and then every airline manufacturer uses you, you're set for life because they're not going to stop using you, right? So it's like, if you can build over the next couple of years, these platforms and these emerging industries, and you're the go-to name in that platform to do something that's different than just store data or to compute data, then there's just massive exponential growth there. The question is, can they sell? And this is where you have to trust management. Like, do you believe Alex Karp is the guy that can get it done? And when I saw that picture of him with Zelensky in Ukraine, I was like, oh, like they weren't just lying about, hey, when things are bad, it's good for Palantir because Palantir can actually go help in those situations. When you see one of the only public CEOs in the entire world go visit a country that's under fire right now, it really lets you know, man, they're actually trying to execute this. So it's a risk. It's a growth stock. It's a risk. There's a chance it doesn't happen. There's a lot of issues with it in terms of the dilution and all that stuff. But there's something about the essence of it that makes you realize it would be weird to not invest in them right now. So we'll see what happens. This podcast episode is sponsored by 7investing. That's right. We are partnering up with 7investing to learn more about the latest innovation and developing trends in the investing world. We were so privileged to invite the founder and CEO of 7investing, Simon Erickson, to share with us the foundation of 7investing's investment principles and have him talk to us about investing in stocks for the future. I personally love how their mission is to empower you to invest in your future and to think like a long-term investor. So as a listener, you get to enjoy $25 US off on the first month of 7investing's monthly membership or annual membership, which you will have access to receive their start recommendations and lead advisor updates by simply entering keyword Goliath as the discount code. Now, back to the podcast episode. I think it's important for my audience to understand Palantir's products and services, and I'm sure you've been able to understand the services quite well, focusing on Foundry, Gotham, and Apollo. Could you help my audience understand the differences, the value of these products, and what are the business opportunities ahead? 
Yeah, so they have three main ones. Foundry is dubbed as the modern operating system for the enterprise. So enterprises integrate Foundry and then all of their data that is siloed in different in parts of the organization, they come together in this one software and it spits out a bunch of answers for how they could be able to use that data in a more meaningful way. That's their like number one commercial product that's scaling. Gotham is kind of like Foundry for the government. It's a governmental-based, decision-based product, and it integrates a lot more deeply with the nuances of the government. So like the CIA has some things that the FBI has to not see, and the FBI has data that the CIA can't see. So like, how do you integrate data meshed within organizations that are very complex, very confidential, that also have to protect civil liberties, but that could also integrate in a way that data isn't transferable and seen in the wrong places. So that Gotham is that sort of core decision-making software for governments and European companies or European governments are starting to use it a lot more. So they're really attacking the European government side and the North American side with the United States. And then Apollo is this really interesting one. It's the hardest one to explain, but it's kind of like the foundation of Foundry and Gotham. It's the platform where it's an abstraction layer above a lot of the other pieces of software. So the best way to, to sort of explain it is if you are a software company and you have to issue updates on your app, how do you issue those updates? Well, the way you issue those updates is like, all right, we want to introduce a new button on the left-hand side of the corner. In order to issue it, we have to send it to the developers. The developers have to look at it. The developers have to send it to the product engineers and designers. And, and it has to go through all these different little parts in order to get to the end user on your app. Apollo kind of controls that entire workflow. So when you use Apollo, it truly is like a foundation for how software gets from one side of the company all the way down to the end product and the end user. And the value, the impact of this is that it decreases the time it takes to actually issue a software update, which if you're a technology company, the amount of updates they issue every day is like incredibly important. And then they have to get approved and go through all this stuff to get to the end product. So Apollo is kind of that baseline layer. And they're introducing a lot more products over time. They've hinted that they're introducing a lot more products. They have some other products like Meta Constellation. The Meta Constellation is a variation of Foundry where they can take real-time data from space and then integrate it into Earth, integrate it into people who are looking at that data on Earth using geospatial intelligence. So there's a lot of different types of products they have, but Foundry, Apollo, Gotham are like the core three things that they sell. Thanks for that breakdown in terms of what these products do. I think it's interesting with Foundry, the multidimensional value it brings to a business and allowing institutions to collaborate globally and save time and security and essentially reducing costs. One thing that caught my eye is the philosophical aspect of applying ontology to a business. Can you tell me more about ontology? I think that's something that you've covered in your written works on the value of ontology, team-specific applications, self-serve analytics. I think those complex topics are quite difficult to understand and talk about, especially if you're not in the industry. Tell me more about the value ontology brings to an entity. So ontology philosophically means a state of being. That's what it means. And it's so funny when I heard Pounder talking about ontology back in like November 2021, that's when they started like really trying to explain it. And for me, I did debate in high school. So philosophically, whenever I debated about an ontological question, it always had to do with like freedom and existence and like the nature of existence. So that's I also was attracted to them because I was like, I've been debating these philosophical concepts. And now you guys are trying to take that and apply that to tech, which is like such a unique thing. And it's one of the things that I'm big on on Palantir is they have these moral philosophical beliefs that they believe in, that they're radical enough to say, we believe this. And then they try to integrate that into their tech, so like civil liberties. They believe people should not be spied on, even if you're protecting the government. That is a core belief that is not broken. It's integrated into the actual technology. They don't believe in working with authoritarian regimes. It's integrated into their business. So ontology, when I say it philosophically means the state of being, it's it apply that same definition to a business. What is the state of being of your business? When you create a business and you have all this data, how can we integrate the operational workflows, whether it's sales or supply chain or customer, customer support or logistics? 
into one workflow that lets us understand how analytically we can then make sense of the state of being of the business. So the ontology layer of Foundry is actually the hardest thing in the world to build. It's what they spent 15 years building because it's like all these other platforms, they host your data. They can, you can put your data in the cloud. Now, not only do you need to make sense of your data, you need to make sense of the data that makes sense of your data. And that's where you have this abstraction layer like ontology, which is on top of the operational workflows of your software. It's a bit hard to understand from a technical perspective, but from like a, a pure macro perspective, if you can use that ontological explanation of your business and integrate all of your data into that ontology, it will help you understand the business in a lot more better ways. And then the big thing about ontology is they have AI and machine learning ops on top of it. Now, AI and machine learning has an 85% failure rate when it comes to being able to actually explain the data that goes into it and then use some type of machine learning simulation to be able to come up with a recommendation for your knowledge. So you think about the use cases of this in the future, right? Let's say cancer research gets so advanced in the next 15 years that doctors can take a drop of blood from you and they can put it into a system. And there's a lot of data that comes from that drop of blood. And that goes into an ontology layer on top of foundry that's built for the drug healthcare enterprise. And it lets you know the percentage of chances. It makes an accurate simulation or prediction of how likely you are to get cancer in the future or how bad your blood pressure is to the point where it will lead to some type of effect. But you can only do that if you have like hundreds of millions of data points of people who've had cancer in the past and their blood data and all the different things that was in their blood that led to the probability of them having cancer. And then it has to be integrated in an actual machine learning algorithm that's very, very nuanced and complex. It's more nuanced than the YouTube recommendation algorithm that uses machine learning to actually discover do you have cancer or not, or what's the probability of getting cancer. And that's what ontology can do. That's the potential of it in the future. And the failure rate on, on building that type of ontology layer is very high. That's why Snowflake, Datadog, they don't have that stuff. So that's a big selling point for the company. Thanks for helping my audience understand what ontology means. It's interesting to get your thoughts on the risks with investing in a company like Palantir here. I'm sure you've analyzed the pros and cons. What are your legitimate concerns with investing in a company like this? I mean, there are some elementary concerns around stock-based compensation and dilution, and the market cap is a bit too high for the outstanding shares that they have. And I think all of those, if you grow, those are taken care of. They don't matter too much. The biggest concern I have is, can they actually conduct a sales strategy that penetrates the masses? Can they build a sales strategy that gets thousands of people to use their product and to know the product? Because to be honest, they, they quite frankly are not good at marketing. They're like, they're not good at explaining what they pound here does. Because as you said, it's so complex. So like people like me on the internet are doing it for them. And I think they have to more radically and deeply integrate with like simple explanations that hopefully I come up with on their own mainstream outlets. Now they're focused on building the product, they're focused on building the business, and they have a little bit of an arrogant tone in terms of the way they, they go about their company, which I get and I like it at sometimes. But at some level, if people don't get what you're selling, they're not going to buy, especially investors. I mean, like if they just don't get it, they're just like, you get Tesla, it's a car, it's an Apple's a phone, but like Palantir is a B2B enterprise software that protects civil liberties. Like, what does that even mean? So I think we have to do a better job of explaining. I think growth solves everything. I think they know what they're doing. I mean, Alex Karp, when you hear him talk, he's like, in two years, I know what the articles are going to say. They're going to say that we built an amazing technology. So like, he's very bullish on it. He understands it really well. And you want to trust that person just given how bullish he is and how the stuff he said is actually starting to come true. But the execution risk, can they sell? That in the next two years, if they are not able to scale and sell this product, Wall Street is not going to reward them. And the stock might still be stuck at 10, 15 bucks, especially if the macro environment is not, is not better by then. Yeah, I think a lot of investors and analysts are concerned with the stock-based compensation. Yes, it's decreasing, but still quite high at $149 million at the end of fiscal quarter one. And it could change if they need to hire more top talent in the next couple of years, in my view. I think that's one of my main concerns. Another concern is potentially conflict of interest on the government contracts or relationship. 
let's say two conflicting governments or countries don't like each other but need palantir service then how are they going to maintain these kind of relationships going back to what palantir is trying to be becoming a neutral adjudicator the idea of being neutral it's very difficult and you can apply it to everyday life as a mediator or just in general just being neutral and diplomatic in every situation while getting paid top dollar for their service but i think a lot of it is going to be dependent on alex carp's view it depends on how alex carp wants to maintain these sensitive relationships with institutions or government entities i think he is a big component of this business i think he's logical if you watch his interviews and how he answers questions he's very intelligent but he also admits that he's a crazy guy and not a lot of people are going to agree with him on certain topics he says he's an artist you're betting on this person being able to execute a company not within this year next year it's about 5 years time period as he says and sort of holding him accountable for what he said and you know just being able to execute in a 5 year time frame and whether it's possible i guess time will tell but what are your thoughts on that yeah i think he's an artist he has a phd in philosophy for a reason and he's built a company in a very philosophical way it's kind of his canvas that he's been painting on i think he sees the world in a certain way and he wants to execute his company against his world view and his world view is good his world view is not bad So as a result of that I'm trusting his world view. I'm trusting that he has the ability to execute. I think he has shown he can execute over the past 17 years in a really meaningful way. And now it's just a question of can they actually get it to to the masses. And I think some people don't like his philosophical ramblings. He does tend to just like be kind of a philosopher and just speak for 8 minutes off the cup even if you ask him a question that he's not answering. But I kind of like it because it shows me that the guy really does have a passion for what he's doing and he deeply believes in it. And at this age he's 54, he's never been married, he's worth over a billion bucks. You kind of ask yourself what's the motivation? And you see when he's talking philosophically that the motivation truly is to help the world and stop the world when chaos happens and be the technology company that's there to revolve around it. So, I think they want to be the most important technology company in the world. I think they have a philosophical belief that other companies aren't stepping up to the plate to be able to do that. Now it's time to play with the big boys. And yesterday Pouncer just announced a, a collaboration with Google. They're integrating Pouncer Foundry on top of Google Cloud's marketplace. So like the most evil company in the world now is working with Google, you know, if Google's saying, "Hey, we don't think they're evil. We actually really like their software." That's going to be good for them in driving business overall. But let's see if they can execute. And if they can, I think it'll be good for us in the long run. And looking to the guidance and expectations that they're expecting in terms of revenue growth to be 30% year over year, do you think it's sustainable given that we're heading to a very bearish market in terms of understanding whether Pantheer is recession proof given that the company has no debt and it has 2.3 billion cash on the balance sheet. I mean, going back to that question, are they able to execute on the sales side and possibly become profitable? I hope so, man. I honestly don't know. 30% year over year is a tough task. I wouldn't say it's tough. The recession is probably not happening, but it seems like the recession is happening, which means selling is just going to be harder to sell anything. Every company is going to get hit by it. So like that's there and then on top of that, you know, they have to get better at sales in general. So like I think when they hit their inflection point for growth, we should be seeing 50-60% growth year over year. I don't know how close that's going to be and I especially don't think it's going to happen like in the next 18 months given the recession. Now, one of the things that they've said about the recession is that they have zero debt. They have 2.3 billion on cash, which means they don't need to borrow money, which means interest rates don't really affect them, and they have a very sticky business model in the context of government. So like they are theoretically a recession proof stock 
that their clients use. Like there is reoccurring revenue because people use their stuff. So it's hard to see them collapse or go bankrupt in times like this. It's also like a Peter Thiel company that just doesn't happen. Those are operators. They keep it afloat. Now it's a question of how big they can get. So I think if we make it out the next two years and we grow decently, hopefully when the macro is better, that leads us to, to better inflection points. But we don't know. Maybe they grow like crazy over the next 18 months. Can I ask how much you're invested in Palantir? Let me just look at it right now. I have 2,000. <laughs> I bought one share yesterday. I was like, let me just get one share. I haven't bought it in a while. I have 2,177 shares at a 1965 average. That's 42 grand. And I'm down at 17. I'm basically down 25 grand. So that's where we're at. <laughs> <laughs> you know, to me, it's like people act like it's affects me. I'm like even like Tom Nash, he's down a lot. He's brought me down a lot more money. I mean, I know Sachin, he's on the Pounder Weekly podcast. He's down a couple million. I mean, like we bought into the company in 19. We saw it being exponential. No one saw the market crash. If you did see the market crash, then congratulations. I hope you made a lot of money, but most people didn't. So if you didn't, you got to deal with it. And now I'm not selling. I'm not like, okay, like it's, I'm down. It's, the only thing I say for people who are listening to this, and I'm sure everyone knows this, if you can invest what you can afford to theoretically lose it, like I might not see this 25 grand for the next couple of years, then you're okay. If you can't lose that 25 grand because you had to pay rent and, and like, then it sucks. But that's why you always keep money on the side. By March, I stopped putting money into the market. But like February I was putting everything, January putting everything. And then I realized, wait a second, I underestimated how bad this is going to be. And then I just stopped investing and I saved up a decent amount of money. And you know, now I'm fine. Hopefully that 25 will come back one day. One day. <laughs> Full disclosure, I also have a small stake in Palantir, less than 10% of my portfolio. My average is around 19, similar to yours. But I do think that there's an opportunity given that their balance sheet looked good, to be honest. I did have some slight concerns with the government revenue growth year over year. I think Q1 2022 was slightly weak, grew 16% compared to Q4 where they grew 26%. But then this negative news was offset by the commercial side, which they grew 54% in Q1 2022 compared to Q4, it was at 47%. I think there's positive adjustments focusing more on commercial. It just shows that their business is becoming more scalable, which is good news. But I'm also aware I could lose all my money in Palantir because if you reference what Warren Buffett says, a great business or good business, that business can be run by any fool. This is going to be dependent on AxCorp's leadership and execution based on, again, me watching his videos and his interviews and how he presents himself. I think there's a high level of self-awareness in terms of understanding his own strengths and weaknesses, which is quite interesting and not a lot of leaders possess that criticism towards him or herself. I feel like he's almost like the Elon Musk of the cloud space 2.0. I don't see a lot of competitors. I don't know if you think the same way, but I'm curious to get your thoughts on that and sort of deep dive into this a bit more. Yeah, I don't see too many competitors outside of the basic snowflakes and Datadogs and even Microsoft. Like they spent 15 years building a very highly differentiated product that has a big fail rate. And that's why they're winning right now. And companies that try to copy them, I mean, like Google should have copied them, right? Why didn't Google copy them? Why is Google working with them? It's like Google's like, eh, it's not that easy to copy this thing. We can copy cloud computing and we can copy AWS, but it's very difficult to copy a highly specific differentiated business intelligence tool. So I don't think they have like core competition that's super direct. I think it's a lot of it's indirect, but I think people are coming up, you know, Microsoft's going to want to build something like this. Amazon one day might want to build something like this. 
at the end of the day, Google makes 95% of the revenue from search, right? Like, so they have to optimize search because they sell ads. Like that is their business. So when you try to invest a lot of resources, and this is what happens with Facebook and the metaverse, right? Metaverse thing's not making money. Investors are like, screw you. <laughs> we need our money. So Facebook's like, all right, we're going to stop working on the metaverse as much as we were. We're going to allocate more money to improving our advertising business because that's what makes the money. So I think Palantir has found something that makes money that works for them. And the other companies trying to replicate that means they have to, to take resources away from their core competencies, which is just difficult in a recession because you know the market's already not going to reward you. So if you're taking a loss on this new project, it's not the best either. So I don't think they have a lot of competition. I do think they have people that are catching up. And that's why the time's on the clock for them to execute. And how much time would you give Palantir to execute? Yeah, I think the next three, four years are vital. I mean, and the reason I say three, four years is because the next 18 months, if there's a recession, you just can't blame them. I mean, like, are you going to blame Netflix for not getting subscribers in a recession? No, people are not going to subscribe. They need to save that extra 16 bucks a month. So it's like the stock might get hurt, but I won't blame the company for doing it. They're, they're going to be like, what are we supposed to do? Are we supposed to fix the economy to get people to feel 16 bucks is cheap every month? So same thing with Palantir. If they can't sell in, in a recession, which I think they can, right? I think they actually can because they're going to be saving a lot of organizations time, energy, money. Like the sales pitch is not that hard, even if it's a recession. So I think they will be okay. But if they're not, then it's just the question of the macro. How bad does the S&P get? We're at 360. We erased all the gains that we had from 2021 when we ran up to 479. Do we go to 3,100? Do we go to 2,560 on the S&P? Because if we do, we're in a true, true bear market, um, which means there's going to be an opportunity at that point to recover over the next four years. But at that point, we'll see how much they get. I think a lot of people don't know or don't remember that Panther is actually 20 years old. The company generates a lot of cash, but it's not profitable yet. That's one of the concerns that a lot of bear analysts say, but one of the tricky points is that they have a lot of logistical costs, either hiring people, finding a business model that's profitable. One of the biggest pain points is you need to hire smart people and being able to maintain confidentiality, their data cannot get hacked. And you've nailed one of the concerns is being able to execute on the sales side I guess time will tell. So thank you so much for your view on Pound and sharing your analysis on this company. I appreciate your time today. So a big component of my podcast is to let my guest speaker share their investment learnings or mistakes. I think that's really important on top of everything that we've discussed today. Just being able to learn from others and learn from your own mistakes is just priceless. What would you say is your biggest mistake or learning in stock market investing? I would say to just be patient. Like, like sometimes you think there's a great deal, you know, S&P all-time high is 479. It ran up to like 410 last week. Like, oh, this is great. It's met rallying, you know, 5%. I should buy in before it goes to 420. And then it crashes to 360. And it's like, you can't always get it right, but recognize like, well, why is it going up? Well, there is no reason for it to go up. There's zero catalyst, which means it's just going up because the market is irrational. And if you've been in the market long enough, you can understand when these things happen a little bit and not get you know, fooled by them. So I, I think being patient, right? And even if you get in at a higher price, it's okay because the downside of you losing a lot more money because you just got in because you were just like too scared to miss out, which has happened many times for me on stocks. And I'm sure a lot of retail investors can relate to this because we just don't have the data that hedge funds have. It's important to just be a lot more patient. So being patient, DCAing into your highest conviction positions, that's like the number one piece of advice I, I believe anyone can give. And also having a life outside of the stock market. Like, you know, looking at stocks all day is great, uh, but it can drive you kind of crazy. So like, I know I do market open every day and I think it's fun. I hopefully it's entertaining and people show up and they have a good time. But after that, you know, I've got a lot of other stuff to do because I have a startup and I'm running a business and all this. So like, 
you know, take a look at it every day, feel it, and then go do something else with your life that matters. And, you know, hopefully in five years, there's more money than there's not. And before we wrap up the episode, how do you see the markets right now, given the volatility that we've experienced the last two days, the interest rates hike? How do you see it play out? I mean, it's very simple. I think it's going to get worse. I see no catalyst for it to get up. Inflation has to decrease, but they just raised 75 bips. Maybe that helps. Maybe that doesn't. I think it's going to get worse. I mean, I kind of agree with JP Morgan Goldman Sachs that we might hit 3,400 on the S&P very easily over the next couple of weeks. I think investors are starting to recognize that Bitcoin, I mean, like Bitcoin just collapsed over the past week. It's very hard for me to imagine this stabilizes. To me, this is like something that's falling and you got to rip the bandaid off and just let it fall. And then so we can get back to normal. But I think it might be a more slower and painful fall. But then again, I could be wrong. I don't want to buy anything over the next couple of months because I have zero idea where any of this stuff is going. And so, you know, we'll see how, how it plays out. It seems really obvious, right? Like the market is deteriorating. Like you could be shorting every single stock if you have a short-term bearish view. You would make a lot of money essentially. But I'm a bit conscious that some things are too good to be true. I do think that there are opportunities out there, but you have to be very selective. I mean, baby planter could be an interesting investment idea, given that there is a lot of geopolitical instability out there, which forces a lot of companies to deploy or allocate resources efficiently or strategically through the use of data analytics. And as the world becomes more unstable, it kind of helps with the marketing of Palantir. And lastly, I want to let my audience find more information about you, Amit, in terms of how my listeners can find your YouTube, your written works, your Twitter. I think it's great. I think you add a lot of value to the Palantir community. So thank you so much for your time today. I appreciate you, man. It means the world to me. So yeah, at Amit is investing on Twitter. If you guys want to follow me, hopefully it's a fun source of entertainment every day. My YouTube channel probably will be linked in this thing. And dailypalantir.com for anyone who wants to learn more about Palantir, you can check out the website and get some daily updates on it. And uh, yeah, I am starting a startup. First of all, if anyone's listening and wants to invest in the startup, we're raising a pre-seed round right now. You can email me at admit at dailypalantir.com. The startup has nothing to do with Palantir. It's a technology company. We have some pretty unique set of angels that are investing, some big YouTubers that are investing as well. So if anyone's interested in that, you can definitely hit me up. Uh, the round will be launching publicly to the masses and from a crowdfunding perspective, probably in mid-July. So if anyone's interested, they can keep an eye out on that. And yeah, if you guys follow along on YouTube, hopefully you enjoy some of the content. Thank you, Amit, for your time. I really appreciate our conversation today. And hopefully I'll be able to catch up with you sometime on Palantir again. The views and opinions expressed here do not necessarily reflect the official position of the speakers in this podcast. Any content provided by guest speakers are of their opinion and are not intended to represent or malign any institutions, religion, or group. This podcast is for educational and entertainment purposes only, and we are not your financial advisors. If you like this podcast or want to find more about us, please subscribe to our Instagram page at mmarketgoliath and on Apple Podcasts and Spotify. Thank you for listening. We look forward to have you join our next episode.